I want to start by telling you uh, something about me that's probably not that shocking. Uh, I'm not one of those people that really understands the fascination uh, with the royal family. I know that probably boggles your mind, right? But uh, unless you've been living under a rock, you know that uh, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, uh, was the coronation of King Charles III, I think. Um, and it was this massive event. No expense was spared. Uh, it was projected to have cost Britain somewhere between 50 and 100 million dollars. Uh, although for some reason Buckingham Palace hasn't come out and given the exact number, which is strange. Uh, anyway, uh, I was reading a little bit about the king this week and his coronation. Did you know that King Charles, just for himself, has 28 household staff? He has four private chefs, five house managers. I don't even know what that is. Uh, I, I mean, he has three valets, which feels like a lot of valets. Uh, he has three people that are hired to dress him and style what little hair he has. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to be roasting the king a little bit, <laughs> but this is America. That's, that's how this nation was founded, you know? Um, he has also... Several butlers, people who attend to his every need. If he wants something, he gets it. And speaking of those people who dress him, uh, check out his look for the coronation. Uh, pretty, pretty impressive, right? Well, I was, I was curious, so I Googled this week how much all of that stuff is worth. Uh, just this crown alone is worth $50 million. Uh, but that wasn't even the shocking number that I found this week. His scepter, right here, uh, is worth well over $400 million. Uh, actually, just the diamond right here is worth $400 million. That doesn't take into account the rest of it. Uh, that is the largest diamond literally in the world. King Charles has everything this world could offer, everything. He has people to tend to him at all times. He has the largest diamond in the world. His net worth is over $2.3 billion. He's the literal king of 15 countries across the world. And, and yet, in, in almost every picture I saw of him from the coronation, he looks miserable. <laughs> this was one of the happier ones that I found. A man with everything and he doesn't seem very happy. He doesn't seem very content. So we have King Charles, and then on the complete other side of the spectrum, we have the Apostle Paul. We're gonna be reading from his letter to the Philippians tonight, and uh, if you know much about this letter to the Philippians, Paul is writing this while sitting in a jail cell. He's in prison, and he's, he's, he's waiting to find out his fate. He doesn't know which way this is gonna go. And for him, there was really only two ways it could go because uh, in, in, in the ancient Near East, you didn't sit in prison for a long time. You, we, we, you were either released or you were executed. So Paul doesn't know which way it's gonna go. And, and, and he's writing this letter. And this is a man who once had a powerful job. He was a king of sorts in his own day. Paul was raised wealthy. He, he was raised in a family that had status. But now he's a, he's a tent maker. 
He's a church planner, and he has almost nothing to his name, and he's sitting in prison. And this is what he writes. This is Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. The Apostle Paul writes, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty, and in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay, let's compare these two men. On one hand, we have a literal king with access to everything in the world, and he doesn't seem all that happy. And on the other hand, we have a tent maker sitting in a jail cell with almost nothing in the world. And what does he write? He says, I'm content. I'm good with what I have. I rejoice in the Lord. I know the secret to happiness. Which of these two men is actually richer? Okay, we know what we're supposed to say. Yes, pastor, it's Paul. This would be a weird sermon if I was like, it's actually King Charles. But we know what we're supposed to say. It's Paul, but, but so often we don't act like it's Paul. So often we, we think the key to contentment and happiness is accumulation. It's becoming little kings and queens surrounded by stuff. Get more stuff, get more power, get more prestige, and you'll get more happy. But Paul had been there, and that didn't work for him. Like I said, early in his life, he has this great job with good pay, plenty of prestige. And yet it's in this moment of his life, when he's thrown all of that away and he's in prison, that he writes what people will call later his letter of joy. This letter to the Philippians. It's at this point in his life when he no longer has money or status or, or much at all that he's finally content. We've been going through this book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and uh, I love what John Mark Comer says about this scripture. He, he references it in his chapter, in one of his chapters, and this is what uh, he says. He says, in context, Paul wasn't writing about overcoming some allegorical Goliath in our lives. He's writing about one of the greatest enemies of the human soul, discontentment. That nagging feeling of always wanting more, not just stuff, but more life. The next things might not be things at all. It might be a graduation or a marriage or children or a better job or retirement or whatever it is for you on the horizon. But there's always something just out of reach. We live with what Arthur Schlesinger calls an inextinguishable discontent. See, Paul had extinguished his discontent. Remember what he says in our scripture, for I've learned to be content with whatever I have. But for a lot of us, including myself, we're still working on it. So many of us are always chasing the next thing. And it makes our lives hurried. We rush through life and it leads to that hurry sickness that we talked about last week. 
See, one of the contributors to hurry sickness is a lifestyle of consumption and accumulation. It's trying to be more like King Charles than the Apostle Paul. We get hurry sick because we think we need what the world is selling. We need the next promotion, the next rung of the ladder, the next milestone. So we hurry to get there thinking that it'll, it'll, it'll scratch the itch of that inextinguishable discontent. But it never does. And we, we keep searching, trying to find the thing, trying to find the pinnacle. There's a, there's a great story about uh, the American entrepreneur John D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller was the richest man in American history. He was worth $1.4 billion in 1937. <laughs> that's, that's more than half of what King Charles is worth today. 90 years ago. His, his wealth was actually equivalent at the time to 1.5% of the entire American GDP. Well, the story goes that at the height of his, his, his power, uh, he was meeting with a reporter. And this reporter asked him, John, how much money is enough? And Rockefeller stopped and he laughed and he said, just a little more. Uh, this, this story has been used for a long time, uh, and it's often used to inspire entrepreneurs and, and business people. It's supposed to represent this hunger to achieve, and I get that. But I also think there's some hurry sickness here. I think this is an attitude that Jesus calls us to ruthlessly eliminate from our lives because the truth is, just a little more doesn't make us any happier. Studies have shown that your emotional well-being doesn't improve after uh, the number that, that was in the study was $75,000. And that number is an average across the United States. Uh, obviously, it's higher in super expensive areas like New York City or San Francisco, and it's much lower in rural areas, but the point is the same. There is a certain point where making more and having more has no additional benefit to one's happiness. Being able to buy bigger, nicer things, consuming more, doesn't make us any more content. Even the biggest diamond in the world won't do it. Because that's not where contentedness comes from. And Paul understood that. He models that in our scripture. See, Paul knew that one of the, the great secrets to contentedness was not stuff, it wasn't complexity, it wasn't lives packed full. It's actually simplicity. He knew that no crown or scepter or salary or just a little more was gonna make him happy or healthy or whole. Because what we really need, what really helps us eliminate hurry from our lives and find contentment is simple living. Paul was content with simple living because Jesus was. Remember, remember all the things that Jesus says in the Gospels, urging people to just slow down and live a simpler life. Jesus says, watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. He says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and body more than clothes? Seek first 
the kingdom. Jesus talks a lot about simple living. He talks a lot about living a life that's free from the chains of materialism. A life where whatever we have is enough. Now let me be clear, Jesus was not some glorified drifter, right? He, he had a job, he was a carpenter, a, a tecton. And so he would build uh, simple things like tables and chairs and he would sell those. And he spent much of his life working that job. But the difference was Jesus was never trying to climb some ladder. He wasn't trying to build a great carpentry empire to rule the world with. I mean, if he had wanted to be king, he could have been. He was the king of kings, after all, and yet that's not what he does. Because Jesus was content with simple living. And I think maybe we should be too. But in order to do that, in order to to do the work that this book, and more importantly, Jesus calls us to, We have to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. We have to battle this rampant culture of consumption and accumulation that we are surrounded by. We have got to find ways to live more simply. So the question is how, how do do we do that? And this is where I wanna lean on the book a little bit. Uh, uh, In his chapter about simplicity, Uh, John Mark Comer lists 12 ways that we can practically simplify our lives. And uh, if, you know, you can find those if you have the book. Uh, I'm just going to touch on uh, a few of them. I tried to pick the ones that I thought were the step one, the easiest. And so, uh, like I said, I can't cover them all, but uh, the first is this question. He says, ask, what is the true cost of this item? So he says, if we want to ruthlessly eliminate that discontented, ladder climbing, always needing just a little more part of us, we should start with the way that we buy things. And so Comer suggests that we ask ourselves a couple of questions before we buy something. And the first is, what's the true cost? Here's what he means by this. Everything comes with a greater cost than what's on the sticker. So when you buy something, ask yourself, what will this cost me, not just in terms of money, but in in terms of upkeep? How much time will it require? How much energy will this take me away from or draw me closer to those that I love? Will it simplify my life or will it complicate my life? What's the true cost? I wish wish I'd asked myself that before we bought our first house uh, because it came with a super old hot tub. And uh, we had the option, uh, the sellers had given us the option of destroying this thing. And looking back now, that's kind of what they were recommending. But they had given us this option to, to, to get rid of it or to keep it. Well, I opted to keep it. And I was so excited about this thing. I thought I was gonna climb in it the three cold days that we have in Texas a year and be so happy but it ended up being such a money pit. An energy pit, a time pit, everything. Like I said, it was super old, and so it would take like three days to heat up. And it used so much electricity. Uh, and, And when we finally did use it, we could never keep the chemicals right. And so it would be fine for like a day, and then it would get 
green and murky and stuff would float in it and it was, it was nasty. Um, the true cost of this hot tub was so much more than I realized. And it most certainly was not conducive to simple living. Okay, so that's, that's the first question that Comer encourages us to ask. The second is this. Ask, by buying this thing, am I oppressing the poor or harming the earth? Okay, look, I, I know that this is not an easy question to ask ourselves, but honestly, it's one that we really need to as we live in this increasingly globalized world. Because, we, because one in six people on earth work in the garment industry. One in six. Almost 1.5 billion people, but only 2% of them actually make a living wage. See, as followers of Jesus, we have to hold ourselves to a higher standard. We have to, to ask if the things that we buy were produced ethically. We have to ask ourselves if buying this thing helps or hurts our neighbor. And then we also should ask ourselves if it helps or hurts the earth. That's the other part of this question. Again, this isn't always easy for us to admit, but what we buy impacts the earth. And the average American's environmental impact is actually three times worse than it is in the rest of the world. Look, my point is simply this, what we buy matters. And who we buy from matters too. And if we are careless with what we buy, it can contribute to systems of oppression, or it can contribute to the pollution of this beautiful earth that God has given us to steward. So we have to be willing to ask some hard questions. And we ask those hard questions, and then John Mark Comer offers this suggestion. He says, get into the habit of giving things away. One of Comer's recommendations for how to start building simplicity into your life is, is to start with your closet. That's what he did. He was greatly convicted when he discovered that some of his favorite clothing brands were produced in unethical ways, and so he decided to donate much of his, his uh, clothing, much of his closet. And when I first read this book in 2019, I got inspired too, and so I decided I was going to purge a bunch of my old clothes, and you know what? It was actually so freeing. I realized what a large percent of my clothing at the time was stuff I either never wore or mostly stuff that I was never going to fit into again. Uh, I am embarrassed to tell you all how many size small and extra small t-shirts I found from high school and middle school. Uh, and look, I, I have already accepted that I will never again be a size small. But seriously, it, it, this is so easy to do. If we want to simplify our life, if we want to, want to try and, and build this into our life, start with your closet. Pack up a few boxes and take them to Angel's Attic. If you're not familiar, we have a wonderful ministry here through the church. Angel's Attic is, is a resale shop in Grapevine, and it is super easy to do drop-off, uh, and they do amazing, amazing ministry. But get into the habit of giving things away. Because when we are consistently generous with our stuff, and when we give away rather than accumulate, that's simple living. That's the, the uncluttered, humble living that Jesus and Paul did. And so we ask those hard questions and we make a habit of giving things away. And these are just a couple of, of tangible, easy ways for us to start on the road towards simple living. 
And simple living is a part of how we find contentment, the contentment that that Paul writes about in our scripture. And simple living, it's a part of it, but I do want to say it's definitely not all of it. Actually, the, the biggest thing that leads us to a place of contentment isn't simple living at all. The biggest place that leads us to, to, the, to the contentment that Paul had in our scripture is the simple gospel. What was, what was the thing that made Paul so content? What made it so that he didn't need anything else? It was Jesus. He could do all things. He could be content in all things, in all situations, because he had Jesus. In comparison to that, all the junk that this world offers, crowns and diamonds and clothing and hot tubs, it is all garbage. Paul knew that. Paul lived that. And so we live simple lives because we believe in the simple gospel. Here's here's what gave Paul the contentment he possessed. He knew that Jesus lived and died and rose. He knew that because of him, we are free from the chains of this life, free from the chains of death and sin and consumption and accumulation and hurry. That's the simple gospel. We can be content with simple lives because we have the simple gospel. We don't need crowns. We don't need scepters or status or just a little more. Because he is and he always has been enough. On the mountaintop when things are going really well, he's enough. In the jail cell, when things aren't going really well, he's still enough. In all things, in all places, he is enough. We don't have to complicate it. So church, let's, let's reject our culture of consumption. Let's not try and be a bunch of, of kings and queens sitting on thrones frowning. Let's learn to be content with a little. Let's learn to be content with what we have, with simple living, and more importantly, with the simple gospel. Because believe it or not, it really is just that simple. Hallelujah. Amen. Will you bow your heads? Lord, we live in a complicated world. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed by it. There are so many things to consider and, and, and so many things to weigh and, and, and often we just feel like we can never do enough. So God, in that place, we, we just invite your Holy Spirit to guide us. Lead us toward lives where, where we can be content with whatever we have. God, help us to seek your kingdom first the way that your son instructed us. Help us to not find our identity in our stuff. Because Lord, our identity is in you. It's in your grace. It's in your love. 
It's in the fact that you are enough. Lord, it's in the simple gospel. And so God, as we sing this next song, I pray that that would just wash over us. That if we're feeling uh, a lot of conflicting emotions or thoughts, help us to stop and to calm ourselves and to simplify. To know that you didn't come to earth to confuse us or trip us up. You came to show us the way. Lord, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of our rock and our redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you don't miss new releases. We'll have new podcasts coming out all the time. Be sure to check us out online at whiteschapelumc.com. Please download the WC Life app and follow us on social media to stay up to date with all things WC.